Uh, today, I want to talk about the passage you saw, you saw, heard, but you also saw, I hope, uh, in Romans 12. And many talk about that passage. Uh, many Bible scholars describe it as a parenthesis. And they think of it as a, a section where Paul kind of steps out of the thoughts that came before it and the thoughts that come after it and just kind of went off a little on kind of some thoughts that he had. Uh, that maybe it's not really connected uh, to the flow of thoughts that are going on there. I actually disagree with that. I actually think that it does kind of connect in some ways to the thoughts that just precede it. Uh, and I think that because I see the same pattern in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 as I see here. Uh, here, what he does is he talks about spiritual gifts. And he's talking about how God has gifted each member of the church uniquely. He's designed them in a certain way and gifted them in a certain way so that sort of like uh, pieces of a puzzle. Each is designed uh, to, in a very special way, fit together. And as each piece fits together, it forms something that's, that's more useful, that's good, that's beautiful, uh, because of the way those pieces are each designed for each other. Um, and again, he talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. And then right after, he talks about that famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. And here, it seems like Paul then kind of shifts attention. He's, he's talking about how all these pieces fit together, and they make up this family of God, this thing we call the church. And I think he's talking then about as his mind turns to what holds those pieces together? What kind of glues them together? And I think it's this thing that he then begins talking about in verse 9, sincere love. It's the thing that not only holds the pieces together, but it's also a thing that kind of marks that group of people. It's the way that we know that they really are the people of God. This is the mark they carry. It's this thing that he describes as sincere love. He says, love must be sincere. But if you were to interpret that literally, it would, it would actually be the love sincere. It's almost like it's a heading. He's now been talking about us as a community, as a family, as the church. And then he says, the love sincere. And he kind of, I think, starts describing what that love sincere looks like. Again, not just any love, sincere. And that word sincere could also be translated not hypocritical. And you may have heard this before, but the word hypocritical in um, the first century was a word that was often used to describe an actor or even a mask that someone would wear on stage. And he's saying, not that, not, not acting like you're loving, not just doing loving things, that's not enough. Paul's going to describe something that's more substantial than that, that goes deeper than that, something that's authentic. And I think that's a hard thing to kind of put words to, love. Paul tries different ways to describe it. What is it? It's not just a set of behaviors, right? There's something more to it, this, this authentic, sincere love that he wants us to, to, to understand. It's the thing that is the center of our life as people who, people who are followers of Christ. As I thought about sincere love, the first story that came to mind for me, immediately came to mind for me, was a story about one of my grandsons. I mentioned before I have three grandsons, a joy of my life for my three grandsons. Um, one of my grandsons, though, didn't come into our life until he was seven years old. Uh, we didn't know him until he was seven and became part of our family. Um, and when he came into our family, you know, immediately loved him. But I got to admit, the question in the back of my head a little bit was, well, I love this grandson the same as I do my other grandsons. Will that love and that connection be the same? Because I didn't get to see him grow up and be with him and know him at all in those first seven years of his life. So, so I kind of had that question in my head as he came into our, into our family. Um, 
just a, shortly after he came into family, um, I get a call one time, kind of a panic call from my daughter-in-law. And she's at one of the parks here in town uh, with our grandson, and he has just fallen off the monkey bars. And when he fell off the monkey bars, he broke his arm. And she called us pretty much in a panic. Uh, brand new mom, and she's got a son with a broken arm. And, uh, and she was real close to our house and said she was going to get him to the car and rush him to the hospital. And, and we immediately jumped in the car and drove her, and we were able to kind of meet her as she was just heading to the hospital. And because she was just so upset, I said, can I, can I, I can't look at her, I'll cry. Can I uh, get in the car with you and I'll drive? I'll, I'll get him to the hospital. Uh, because she was so upset. And as I got in the car, my grandson was sitting there with his arm cradled in his lap, and it literally had a U. It was, he had broken his forearm so bad it was curved um, in an excruciating pain. And all he kept saying all the way to the hospital to me was, Grandpa, 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 it hurts so bad. Grandpa, make it stop, make it stop. Grandpa, it hurts so bad. If you're a parent or grandparent, you know. You know that feeling in that moment. You would do anything to take that pain away. You would do anything to take it in yourself if you could and make it stop, right? So we get to the hospital and they give him something for his pain and they put a cast on his arm. And I remember walking out of that hospital and the thought that was in my mind was, I love that little boy um, as much as somebody can love somebody. I love that little boy. I have never had a question a moment since then. Is my love the same for him as anybody else in my family? He, he is ours. He is mine. I love him the way I love my other grandsons. I love him the way I love my children. No question. You know why that was an important question in my mind? Because that's what you want to offer the people in your life, isn't it? Anything less you know would be wrong. I don't want to just go through the motions of loving him. I don't want to just act like I love him. I don't want it to be less than something sincere and authentic because to offer that would disappoint him and it would disappoint me. It would be something, it would almost kind of tease the longing that we all have, right? And then not satisfy. It would almost be harmful to love with a love that's not real and not authentic. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying that what ought to mark the people of God is a sincere love. The kind of love that grows from deep within you it grows from really knowing the other and wanting to know the other and then being responsive to who they are. He, in the next verse, talks about his being brotherly love. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Um, from what I understand of ancient Rome, the love between brothers actually may have been a more significant bond than even the bond between a husband and a wife. In that society, that was considered one of the strongest bonds. So when he says, love one another with a brotherly love, as he writes to these Christians in Rome, he is saying, picture that love. Picture that kind of connection. That's what ought to mark you as the people of God. That kind of love for one another. And then Paul kind of just starts bouncing around almost. It's kind of rapid-fire ideas start happening. It's almost like a series of tweets, you know, today. He'd just be sending them out one after the other, little thoughts. And I wonder if that style of talking about is not on purpose. That as he talks about this sincere love, I wonder if he's not saying, here's, here's a thought about it, here's one aspect of it, but here's another. Before you grab onto that one too tight, you've got to consider this one. And wait, you've got to consider this one, and then this one, and then this one. Because they all kind of weave together. You don't understand any one without the other. They're all necessary if you're going to understand this thing that he's describing, this sincere love. 
He starts by saying that it hates what is evil and clings to what is good. This idea of hate, it, it carries this nuance of shrinking back in horror. It's not just I dislike, it's I hate. I, oh, I just want away from it. Um, I think today many times people think of love as, as sort of being equivalent to acceptance. When they think of love, and I think acceptance is absolutely part of love, but they think of love as almost being completely acceptance. It's acceptance of anything you think, anything you do. Acceptance is love, same thing. Well, Paul seems to say that's not completely true. That actually love is consistent with, somehow one aspect of it is also that it hates evil. Which, if you think about it, makes sense. Because if sin, if evil is diminishing and destructive and dehumanizing, if it takes that which is beautiful and defaces it, if it does harm to people, if it harms their most important relationships, then how could I love them and then look over that as if it doesn't matter? Of course it matters. Of course I want to respond to that. Of course love would include somehow helping them to deal with that or at least longing for them to consider dealing with that. It hates what is evil. But he doesn't just stop there and says it hates what is evil. He says it clings to what is good. The word clings there means to be glued to something. It literally is a part of you. Um, that when you find good, you grab onto it and hold onto it. You make it yours. Again, not just a behavior you do, something that you are. The good. Cling to it. Enter your world in such a way that you hate evil, but you also cling to good. It's not one without the other. And again, this is how these pieces all kind of fit together as you go on. Um, they're, they're all kind of held in tension. Hate what is evil, but a little later, don't be proud or conceited. Hate what is evil, but honor one another. Hate what is evil, but bless those who persecute you. Somehow you've got to figure out a way that those all blend together as you live out this sincere love that we're called to live out. Now, any part without the other part, you've kind of misunderstood it. You're not living it out fully. And then he goes on. I think he continues the thought. He talks about being zealous, about being a people of spiritual fervency. Because if you're somebody who really hates what is evil and loves what is good and clings to it, then you love what is the spiritual. That you're zealous about it. You're excited about it. It's at the center of your very life. And then he goes on, I think, and talks a little bit about how you do that, how you, how you keep that fervency alive. He says, be joyful in hope. So live in this present world, in this present time, in such a way that also holds on to the future. In a sense, bring the future into the present. As believers, we know the end of the story. We know a time is coming when Christ is coming back and all things will be set right. When he will bring true shalom. When God's kingdom will be established, it will be as it's meant to be complete. We know that's coming. Live in that hope in such a way that you bring it into today. Bring that joy here. He goes on and says, patiently endure hardship. Again, live in such a way that you understand in the midst of affliction that you understand we're part of something bigger. Don't let that become the only thing you notice and react to. Understand it's one piece of a larger story. Live into that larger story. Be patient. See the long game as you continue to walk into it. And then it's not just a sitting back and doing nothing kind of waiting. It's a joining what God's doing kind of waiting. It's a longing for it and hoping for it and fighting for it and praying for it. Pray faithfully, he says. He goes on and says that this kind of love is a love that honors one another above yourselves. And he's writing into a kind of honor-shame culture where the ultimate would have been honor. 
protecting your honor, establishing your honor, holding up your honor. And in that culture, he says, lift up and honor the other above yourself. I think if they would have really understood what Paul was saying, Paul was even saying, for instance, to the slave owner, you are to treat your slave as someone deserving of honor. Lift them up even above yourself. Unheard of, unimaginable to the people of that time. But Paul's saying that's what sincere love looks like. It sees the other beyond the way your culture defines them. It sees them as one that God has created and gifted, and it, it responds accordingly. In fact, he goes on and he says that this is a love that, that seeks harmony. Now, I love that word harmony. Now, I am so not a music guy. I, you do not want to hear me sing. Uh, I try and do it quietly so no one else can notice. Music is not my thing. Love it, but don't contribute much to it uh, other than enjoying it. And I don't really fully understand this thing called harmony, but, and so uh, others, I'm sure, will correct me later. But if I understand, somewhat what I hear is that it's, it's different pieces where there's different pitches or different notes that somehow are blended together, brought together in such a way, it kind of creates one sound, one voice. Something, again, that each piece can't be on its own, but when brought together, it forms something more beautiful. Well, that's, that's our goal. It's not sameness. Our goal is not to get everybody to be exactly the same. Our goal is to say, you get to be different. In fact, God specifically designed us all to be different pieces in this puzzle. But then come together, join together in such a way that we make something more complete and so more beautiful. Pursue harmony, not sameness. And he goes on and says, I think one of the ways we do this is you have to work hard not to be conceited or proud. Don't start thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. And associate with people of a low position. So don't think of yourself as being up here. Don't think of them as being down here. Right? If you understand things right, sincere love pulls it back here. Uh, I was reading a story in the Washington Post just last week. It was talking about uh, these two young men in their 20s, both of them at uh, um, Georgetown University. The one was a student. Uh, and the other was a custodian who'd been working there. And they both kind of would cross paths uh, numerous times a week in a study room where the one student whose last name was Bellamy would go to study and the custodian uh, whose last name was Bachelor would be there working every night. And they talked about how every night they were in that same space but almost never even saw each other, never interacted with each other. And it went on night after night after night. Until one night, this young man named Bellamy, the student, began talking to this young man named Bachelor and began interacting with him. Soon found they were both immigrants. Bellamy had moved to the United States with his family from India when he was five. Um, Bachelor had immigrated here from Jamaica. Found out they both longed to be entrepreneurs someday. That's why Bellamy was in Georgetown going to business school. And Bachelor was somebody who made his famous jerk chicken and he wanted to start a catering business. Uh, with that jerk chicken. Uh, they found out they had a lot in common, but then as they kept talking, they found out there was a lot that they were different on, but learned each other's story, kept talking and interacting with each other. Eventually, Bellamy said that he went to church with Bachelor and saw his church, met his six-year-old daughter, was introduced to her, got to know each other, and their lives just started overlapping. What Bellamy, the student, said was, was funny, was that he said, once I got to know this man and interact with him and we became friends, Suddenly, I would walk around campus, and I started seeing everybody else who worked there. He said, it was once you see, you can't unsee anymore. 
Now all of a sudden, all these invisible people were real people to me who had real stories. Suddenly, I'm curious about them. So he actually started a Facebook page called Unsung Heroes. And in it, he started learning the stories of these people that worked at Georgetown and posting their stories. And other students then would read this, and they started posting stories and being curious about the people around them. And eventually, they had story after story of people who worked at Georgetown University. Students who were paying thousands and thousands of dollars a year to go there, and the people who were working there coming together and learning something about each other. And eventually, uh, students got together and did things like, for instance, Bellamy. They started a GoFund project, and they raised enough money for him to start a catering business. Uh, eventually, students raised enough money for one of the women who worked in the cafeteria to actually make a trip to see family she hadn't seen in over 25 years, uh, to travel overseas to see them. Uh, their lives started coming together and interacting with one another. And it happened the way I think this usually happens. It's those who society says in some way are in a higher position, stepping out and associate with those who society says are in a lower position. It's the way it usually has to happen, isn't it? If it's going to happen, that's how it usually is going to happen. And that's what they did. They rejected what society said about these kind of different levels of where we belong and stepped out of it and came together. That's supposed to be what the church looks like. We're supposed to be mar this is supposed to be a place where all those little things that separate don't separate. All those things, and, and maybe we're not like Roman society, where it was very clear, very hierarchical society, where, where one rung on the social ladder did not interact with the next at all. So maybe not that strict of lines here, but we still have ways that divide, right? We still divide over things like race and ethnicity and gender and income levels and education, and we have all kinds of things that separate us. This is to be a place of sincere love, not just looking like it, Sincere love where we actually look at the people by us. We, we treat them as real people that are deserving of honor and we want to know. And then we associate. We connect. Not because I'm doing something good. Remember, these pieces all have to go together. Don't be proud and conceited. Don't think you're doing some wonderful thing. You're connecting to someone honestly who is just as deserving of value and dignity as you are. Just because society says we're different, it's not true. All different pieces, made differently, but all meant to come together and form one beautiful thing. Um, and he goes on, he says that these are people who uh, are responsive to the needs of others. We're responsive to the needs of God's people. We are people who will take in the stranger and love the stranger through hospitality. We're even people who will love our enemies. We'll offer them something to drink or eat when they're in need. Um, we are responsive. And it's one of the things I love about this church. I can honestly say it's one of the things that uh, as I was studying this, I thought, man, I could just tell story after story. I could spend the rest of my time just telling stories of people I've seen in this church who have stepped into the needs of the people sitting beside them today, stepped into the needs of the stranger, who have even at times stepped in and loved their enemies. Well, I tell you story after story. I love that about our church. And that, that should be the case. That should define us. That's what we should be identified by. And then Paul seems to kind of wrap it up with this, with this idea that um, kind of the ultimate that shows that we are people of sincere love. If you really want to see sincere love and understand what that is, then how do you treat those who persecute you or how do you treat your enemy? In verse 14 he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Not just, not just tolerate them, not just don't do harm back to them, actually seek to bless them. 
He goes on in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I love that, that realism in it, right? It's be peacemakers, be people who seek peace, but you can't always accomplish it, right? Just because you want to doesn't mean it will always happen because someone else has choices in this. But boy, don't let it be because of your choices that peace can't occur. Be the people who do all you can to bring peace where you can. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. I think Paul was speaking to, again, these Christians that were living in the midst of a culture of vengeance. A culture where vengeance was seen as a love for justice, as the right thing. If you would be weak not to take vengeance where vengeance was, was owed and deserved. And again, maybe not quite as intense here, but we still kind of have a culture of vengeance, right? I mean, that's still something pretty popular. Um, pull out your movie listings and take a look. Find a week where vengeance is not a central theme in at least one movie. I dare you. You're, you're going to find it somewhere. But pull out TV listings and see if you can find it. Where vengeance is not kind of central to some story. Just pull out your news clippings and take a look. Where vengeance is not central to a story someplace. It's part of our culture still. And, and boy, I love movies. And I can tell you, I sit and watch one of those movies where vengeance is the theme. And, and it's funny, I find myself by the end cheering for it and pulling for it and wanting vengeance. You know, I join right into it. It's like, it feels good to take vengeance. Even if I'd just taken it through somebody on the screen. I want it to happen. And Paul writes and says, but again, not the people of God. Not people marked by sincere love. I don't think it's wrong that we long for justice, so don't hear me wrong. I actually think it's a good thing to long for justice. I'm not saying we should set that aside. I, I read this quote before, and I want to read it again. It's from Miroslav Volf. Uh, he's a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale. Uh, he's a man who witnessed horrible atrocities uh, to the Croatian people during the war with Serbia uh, back in the early 1990s. And he wrote this as a result of seeing those things. He said, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would, I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. That, that if God wasn't wrathful against those horrible atrocities that happened, if that didn't make him mad and he didn't pour out his wrath on it, I can't understand a God who says that's okay. He goes on and says, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Evil deserves judgment and punishment. Know that. That's not inconsistent with love to say that. Justice is good. To pursue the good is to long for justice. And many times scripture says God uses even human systems and governments and authorities to bring justice. For instance, in Leviticus 24, it's a passage we hear all the time, fracture for a fracture, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. But that's a setting of judicial judgment. That's a setting where the judicially authorities are bringing judgment on others and describing how it is to happen. But you look just back a few chapters before that uh, in Leviticus 19 and you read this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Don't take vengeance personally, individually, 
in Romans 12, he tells us not to take vengeance. In Romans 13, he says God sometimes uses governing authorities as an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. God brings justice. He sometimes uses people to accomplish justice, systems, governments, authorities. But he tells us as individuals, as his people, don't take that into your own hands. That's not yours. Leave it in my hands. Uh, matter of fact, he doesn't tell us just don't take vengeance. He tells us to go well beyond that. He says again, bless our enemy, feed them, and, and give them something to drink. And, he, and then he says, in so doing, you heap burning coals on their head. That is a phrase that people have debated, Bible scholars have debated, from what I understand, for centuries. What in the world does that mean? Because in most cases, what that seems to mean, it's, it's a metaphor for bringing judgment and punishment. So they're saying, well, that doesn't seem to fit. You're doing good so that they'll get judged and punished? Um, and so people have had different ideas about what that means. But actually, I wonder if it doesn't mean just what it normally means. I wonder if what it doesn't mean is you, you are so worried about justice happening, God will take care of that. The demands of justice will be met. Your job is to love. Your job is to bless. And if in the end, justice needs to be handed out, justice needs to be satisfied, even the love you gave will be the evidence that God will use when those who responded to it responded with evil. Even your good will become the evidence against them if justice needs to be handed out. What is our job? Our job is to be people who use the weapon God has given us to fight against evil. The weapon he has given us is sincere love. We are to be people who destroy and devastate evil with love, just as has happened in our lives. The demands of justice need to be met. And how thankful I am as a follower of Jesus Christ that those demands for justice were satisfied through Jesus Christ on the cross for me. Justice was still met. Justice was still satisfied. But how thankful I am that Jesus Christ stepped in and took those consequences upon himself for me. That's what we fight for. We fight for others to know that grace and mercy that we know. I don't have a problem with saying justice needs to be satisfied. But how thankful I am that I serve a Savior who has taken it upon himself for those who will turn to him. And if the demands of justice need to be satisfied in some other way because people have re rejected Christ, I need to leave that in God's hands. He will determine the time and the way and how that needs to happen. He will determine where the demands of justice need to be satisfied and how. It's not mine. Matter of fact, if I step in, Scripture tells me here, I'll just get in the way. I'll mess it up, right? Matter of fact, at the very end, he seems to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Seems to be saying that if I choose vengeance, I'm being overcome by evil. I'm actually joining it in some way. And think about that. It makes sense. If evil is ultimately this rejection of God, this unwillingness to submit to him and turning away from him, and the, what grows out of that, then vengeance is simply me again saying, I don't trust you, God. I'm not going to leave it in your hands. I'm not going to submit to you. I'm going to do it my way. I've joined evil, and I've not trusted God. Ultimately, what Scripture tells us is overcome evil with good. Paul ends this little discussion as he started it. Hate the evil. Cling to the good. Overcome evil with good. You want to battle evil? You want to fight it? Fight it with the best weapon we possibly have. Be people who love. Be people who love sincerely. Be people who fight to lift the other up, to care for the other, to meet the needs of the other, to do the good, 
be those people. Because the hope is that people will look at us. They will look at us as the people of God and say, man, you look a lot like your father. I see your father in you. That's what we want to see. And it'd be easy to apply this and say, you know, the, the stories we've all heard, and I've read a lot of these as I was preparing for this, the stories about people who, you know, horrible atrocities have been done to them or crimes committed against them or against people they, they love, and then the stories where they have chosen to forgive those people and to step in their lives in loving ways. And those are remarkable stories. I could tell you one after the other that I was reading this week. Remarkable stories. But honestly, I think equally remarkable are the people who step in and live out sincere love in the face of that sort of drip, drip, drip of daily life. It's, it's not just remarkable when we do it in the big ways. It's remarkable when it's just a part of us. Good is glued to us. We just bring it into our world, whatever's before us and whoever's before us. That is just as remarkable a thing, just as, just as miraculous a thing that has to come from Christ. It's, it's the kind of sincere love that gets lived out when, when, a, when a husband's upset with his wife and feels like she offended him in some way. And instead of taking vengeance, maybe the vengeance is just a little cold shoulder or, or an unkind word, instead of taking vengeance, he considers her and he blesses her and he lifts her up. That's remarkable. It's remarkable when a parent does that to a child. It's remarkable when a student is sitting beside somebody in class who, who others some reason consider of low position and are avoiding them, ignoring them. And you step out and you reach out and you connect to them and treat them as somebody who truly matters. That is remarkable. That is just as remarkable a story when that happens again and again and again. Uh, that's what the people of God should be, people of sincere love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, uh, that this is only possible because of the remarkable love that you have poured into us. We do thank you for your grace and mercy, uh, most remarkably demonstrated by your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for us. Father, we pray that we would not take that love that's been poured into us and that we would somehow hold on to it just for ourselves. But we pray, Father, that you would help us to truly let it flow through us and out to others. The people who sit beside us today, uh, the people who are beside us in our places of work or school, the people we pass on the street, Father, even our enemies, pray that being people of sincere love would be the thing that we just known by. In your name, amen.